and welcome to a special edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith and senior editor Sue Sutter. Today, we're going to tackle advisory committee reform, a topic that has, sponsor- that has sponsors and FDA observers buzzing for months. And to help us, we have Jim DiBiase and Virginia Cox from 3D Communications, a firm that works with sponsors to prepare for the meetings that can influence the application review process. Jim is a co-founder of 3D, and Virginia is a communication strategist there, in addition to a former FDA Associate Commissioner for External Affairs. Together, I think the five of us have probably seen, what, hundreds? Are, are, we, are we up to the thousands yet? Number of ad comms that we've all watched. <laughs> I'm going to assume that most, if not all, of our listeners know what an advisory committee meeting is. So first, we're going to take a look at some of the reforms that are under consideration now at the, at the FDA. Maybe the most consequential reform that's been floated is eliminating or drastically reducing committee votes. Several FDA officials have said that the discussion and reasoning for a vote is more important to them than an actual vote total. Commissioner Robert Califf has said that he's not interested in, quote, gladiator votes on approval, but nuanced advice on what is important in the field. So, Jim and Virginia, could sponsors live in a world with potentially no positive vote to tout at the end of an an, uh, advisory committee? How do you think this changes the meetings? So, you know, you you all have reported, as you mentioned, Derek, there certainly are different views on this uh, and pros and cons, right? So I think the biggest one from our perspective is that not having a vote sort of reduces that ultimate clarity that the FDA is seeking. Um, But what FDA mostly wants is the why behind the vote. And so I think having both of those together and continuing as FDA has is really paying attention to why someone votes the way they vote is important. But if we lose that vote, as I think Dr. Pastor has pointed out, and what he's looking for is really ultimately some clarity from the panel that will help them ultimately make the decision. Yeah, I, I you're spot on as usual, Virginia. But I, I also I also think what would happen, let's assume that they do away with votes, right? Uh, but we're going to have a discussion about the approvability, the benefit risk of a product. The panel members, as they discuss the benefit risk of the product, are going to discuss yes or no. Yes, it's there's a positive benefit risk or no, there's not. <laughs> and people like you are going to tally that vote and you're going to report <laughs> that 10 of the 12 panel members thought the benefit risk was positive. And we've seen this happen before. It doesn't happen often. Uh, but Claret uh, was a, as a device company, um, and they had a panel uh, on the device side probably five or six years ago, and there was no vote. But that's exactly what happened. Through the discussion, the panel members said, well, there's no vote, but if, there, but if the FDA did ask us to vote, I would vote yes or I would vote no. So I think it's really uh, we're over rotating on the topic because <laughs> I don't think you can get away with people expressing their opinions on the benefit risk and nor should we get away with uh, get away from that. I think the votes will add clarity. Um, the sponsors have spent in many cases decades and hundreds of millions of dollars in developing a product and I think they deserve closure <laughs> on whether or not the advisory committee um, thinks the benefits uh, outweigh the risks. 
I, I, I'm going to um, disagree with you, Jim, before we started recording, we were talking about how apparently Pink Sheet and 3D only disagree about nine, about point, you know, 1% of the time or something. <laughs> but he, he says, based on reading our articles, but um, I guess I'm not as confident as you that if FDA didn't have the votes, it would be clear from committee discussion or that panelists would make it clear what their opinion is. Because oftentimes having watched a lot of these meetings, you go all day and you feel like the sense you've gotten from watching it is they're leaning one way and then people are actually pushed to vote and they go another way. Um, because oftentimes, again, these aren't the easy calls. And so sometimes, you know, their sentiments don't necessarily back up in the way um, you would, you know, once they're actually forced to vote, you know, people flip in ways you didn't expect. So I, I guess I worry that without having, forcing people to kind of do that thumbs up or thumbs down, um, we might misinterpret the comments. And then also that might give FDA a little bit of flexibility in a way that, you know, uh, putting my cynical reporter hat on sometimes, you know, they could do, that gives them this flexibility to do what they want and say, well, you know, this is actually what the committee said we should do. And that might actually not be what those people intended. So Sarah, then we agree on the big issue. There should be a vote. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Fair. Yeah. And I I I think it's, I, I, I don't think we should lose sight of why these conversations are happening in the first place. And so if a panel unanimously votes one way or the other, I think the FDA needs to think very carefully about how they um, how they respond and what they do with that. Now, ultimately, the FDA makes that decision, but I think um, a unanimous vote is one thing, a split vote is another. And again, um, you know, the reasons why. I, but I, I want to kind of go back to one thing that I think is so really important. And that's that, and I know we'll dive into these, but, you know, that's that everybody is prepared, right? That these meetings are robust, as robust as possible. The panelists come prepared. There's enough time for Q&A. There's enough time for discussion so that ultimately the FDA gets what they want out of it. And the, and the panel feels like they've been heard. And I know we'll dive more into each of those issues. So I just wanted to make sure that we put the whole the whole vote, the votes at the end of the day, but what happens during that meeting is also. I had a question for Virginia as a communications strategist. How important is that vote and the final tally to the company's press release, assuming it's a public company, after the fact of an advisory committee meeting? Because that is usually what is highlighted in a press mm-hmm. release, along with a caveat that FDA is not obliged to follow the advisory committee's recommendation. But when a company gets a really positive vote, boy, that's out there quickly and, and you know, big, big, bold headlines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and most of these companies, not all, but many of them are public companies, right? So they do need to to put out a statement right away. And I think a lot of what you just pointed on, Sue, are some of the comments coming from Dr. Califf that people focus too much on the vote. But the vote's important, right? It it ultimately reflects the the final um the final feelings and and of the day. And it's what you all report on. So I think it's incredibly important to the companies and it is important on some level to the FDA. But yeah, they they do get those press releases out right away. Um, there's always, they always prepare, you know, one for each scenario as you can imagine. 
Um, but they are important and uh, and what they say again is also important. So you see that reflecting in the in reflected in the press release. Also, I just you know, I don't know if you want to call it just defending the my my colleagues in the media and you know, as well as the communications experts on the other side. I mean, I I I, I venture to guess that at some point there will be a difference in interpretation of who was in favor and who wasn't. So you're going to see, you see five or six stories. Each one will have a different take on, you know, well, it was 12 said they liked it and one didn't. And then the other one will be seven said they liked it and five didn't. And then the press release will come out and say, everybody said they liked it. So <laughs> that you, you run into the, you know, misinterpretation problems, you know, from there too, before you even get to the part of what FDA needs from, from all of this. If I could just add one more thing, I, I agree with what everybody said. The, the, the other nuance here that we might be missing without a vote is not everyone at an advisory committee, if you have 16 members on, a, on an advisory committee, not everyone is as assertive you know, as their colleagues. And you could end up having four or five people with a large share of voice and that they may not be in the, in, in the majority. And without forcing that vote or prompting that vote of all 16 members in my scenario, you may not be getting the true view of the advisory committee members. Sarah, you said something really important earlier, um, and we do this as well, right? We listen very carefully to what everyone's saying. We kind of do our own tally. Um, Sometimes you don't hear from people and you have no idea which way they're going to go um, to Jim's point. So. And and oftentimes you have people who dominate the conversation. So without really getting, um, you know, asking people directly what they think, um, whether through a vote or or otherwise, it's it's sometimes hard to tell which way people go. I've been surprised sometimes by people's comments and then their vote. Um, you know, there's always one or two at every ad comp. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and and since we since we brought up the committee discussion, we might as well talk about that too, because um, Dr. Kalef has talked about creating more time for committee discussion during the meetings, and you know, having watched my share of them, I'm in big favor of that. Um, I I think that present formal presentation times can be cut back to allow for more time, like instead of spending an entire morning going through sponsor and FDA presentations of what's in the briefing document and that most of us have already read, you know, you avoid situations where you get to it's 4.30 in the afternoon, they're on, you know, it's finally down to the the benefit risk recommendation vote and people are getting up saying, I got to go catch a plane and you miss, you know, and they say like, I would have voted yes. And then you just run out the room, run out of the room. So I, I mean, I guess I'm curious what you all think. Do I mean, you know, does everyone pretty much agree that we need more of that back and forth talking time with the committee? Yes. Yes. Uh, certainly, we do. <laughs> we uh, completely agree with you on that, and it's uh, we have to strike the right balance between the internal panel discussion and the Q and A. Um, there's rarely enough time for Q and A. You know, they, they allot the FDA lots about 15 minutes for Q and A after the actual sponsor presentation. That's not nearly enough time to answer all the questions that the advisory committee members are going to have. I mean, again, with my scenario of 16 advisory committees, you have 15 minutes. Let's say you even have 30 minutes. 
sometimes it takes them a minute to ask the question. You know, so how how does that math, how does that calculus work? It doesn't work. So I do think we need to cut the redundancies between the sponsor and the FDA presentation, but there's no reason why a sponsor and FDA can't share the presentations prior to the meeting, cut out the redundancies prior to the meeting. If there's a disagreement on certain data sets or data presentations, then yes, point those out. But when there's alignment, just have one, just have this, the sponsor of the, or the FDA present where they're aligned Let's talk about where they're not aligned. And let's also make sure that the panel members come in prepared. Derek, you said everybody reads the briefing book and, you know, we all know they don't read the briefing book. It, it, it's clear <laughs> That's my by perfect the world. <laughs> yeah. It's clear by yeah. the questions that are asked that not all advisory committee members come in prepared. And that's that's really the, the crux of the problem where you're not getting not always getting to the substantive issues because we're talking about little little things that take up a lot of time. And, uh, you know, I think there needs to be uh, better preparation. Some come in highly prepared and others, it feels, we feel like they just show up to the meeting that day. And the first time, you know, they've cracked the spine on the on the briefing document um, is minutes before the meeting. And that's just not um, good for, for the public health discussion. In, in terms yeah. of the, me the, the meetings being designed to to not just serve sort of the hyper, I guess, FDA aware folks who would read the briefing documents ahead of time and this idea that they are public meetings. And certainly with the vaccines, I think FDA was sort of hoping a new swath of with COVID vaccines, a public would pay attention to this. Can they cut down the presentations as much as we want them to and still feel like they're serving this broader all comer audience, if you will, that you know, is not going to, you know, is not being paid to necessarily um, spend the day before reading documents about this or won't have that same level of sophistication and knowledge ahead of time. <laughs> I think they should be paid to read the documents ahead of time and, you know, charge the sponsor for that as part of the fees. You know, to, to, to give uh, absolution to advisory committee members coming in unprepared because they're, they're not being paid enough. Um, I mean, that's that's not I don't think that's the solution. The solution is to set up an environment where the 16 members or so come in fully prepared, having read the documents and ready to ask the tough questions of the sponsor to make sure the right decisions are made. Yeah, sorry, I wasn't I wasn't talking about the committee members. I was just talking about more like the general public that's, you know, tuning in and is supposed to be able to get something out of these meetings as well in terms of sort of the like FDA's responsibility to kind of open government and all of that stuff, whether, you know, I mean, that's the thing like I sort of struggle with is like the format of the meeting, I think probably needs to be very different for the sort of FDA advisory committee interaction versus the FDA public interaction as part portion of it, how these function which is, I think, why they repeat a lot of information and presentations from um, the briefing documents and so forth. Well, I I mean, I think we have to keep in mind, though, this meeting is is really for the panel. And I think it's great that it's open to the public, but the, the audience of the day is really the panel. And I mean, I'm sort of going to disagree a little bit with you all on the presentations. I think the presentations are incredibly important. We always like and we tell our clients that, you know, to keep them to an hour because beyond that can can be hard to follow and make the meeting quite lengthy. 
But the presentations really summarize the key points, both from the sponsor's perspective and the FDA's. And I think it leads very nicely into the, the Q&A and the, and the discussion time. I'm a lawyer by training, so to me that the public forum and the, the public opportunity to hit some of those points and to address the key issues that the FDA have, right? The, the whole reason we're had an advisory panel is because the FDA has some issues that they want to resolve. So I think the presentations are important. I do think extended Q&A is critical because there never seems to be enough time. I also think discussion is important, but what needs to happen is that the discussions are targeted. Sometimes we see multiple discussion questions that there's no way they can get through. There's opportunity to really streamline those discussion questions and focus on the key things that FDA needs to get out of it. I, um, I'll, I'll sum this up very quickly, but I think if we sort of look at what the devices CDRH does, their meetings are eight to six, pretty much standard. And I think if more of the meetings were that length, we would have ample time to really accomplish all the things that we've talked about. I'm tired thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, Sorry, and, Sarah. And there's also more, more alignment on the CDRH side, or at least more discussion prior to the meeting where they're, they, CDRH almost always shares slides in advance of the meeting. They, they require the sponsor to, to submit the slides. I've even had them have the sponsor submit the script, require they submit the script to the slide so they know exactly what the sponsor is going to say. And the FDA will often provide guidance where they don't agree. There's a discussion um, about what they don't agree with so they we they can try to get more aligned prior to the meeting you know of, of course if there's major areas of disagreement that's what's going to be discussed at the meeting but all the minutiae that we see at some of these meetings gets gets ferreted out in these pre-discussions prior to the meeting so i think that creates a lot of efficiency um on the cdrh side that we that we don't always see in, uh, with cedar and Sieber. Jim, I think that's a great idea. I mean, I, I just, you know, it's like time after time, there's just so much duplication between the sponsor's presentation and the FDA's presentation. The mechanism of action is not changing in between the sponsor's presentation and the FDA's presentation. That's right. I feel like if they could align on the areas where they agree and then the FDA, like maybe the office director or the, you know, the review division director in their opening comments, sort of lays out the basics on what they agree on and then highlights what they don't agree on. And then most of the meeting focuses on that. I think that would be a much more efficient use of everybody's time and resources. Yeah, like they both sides agree that they submitted three studies. They had yeah. this many patients instead of going through it over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, make, <clears throat> that makes a lot of sense. In, in terms of getting or making sure the, the committee members are as prepared as they can be, you know, obviously you have a lot of, you have physicians, you have scientists on there, on the committee that are going to, should be able to understand just about everything that's in there. But you've also got, you know, like the consumer rep is not all, a lot of, sometimes it's a scientist or somebody with a PhD. Patient reps a lot of times are not, are, don't have those advanced degrees. They're, you know, they're like, they're just patients who are active in the community or, you know, interested in, in what's going on. So 
you know, how do you get people to be able to understand? I mean, you know, and we, we talk about this a lot is the, you know, the statistical issues that come up because, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a statistician. I took one class in college in stats. Um, it was a miracle that I passed it. So, you know, it, it's, you know, those kinds of things that, you know, I, I don't know how you get people up to speed on something like that in advance of a meeting or ensure that that's the case. So you, we get past these kind of the, you know, the, the questions that are uninformed or, you know, not necessary kind of thing. Well, I think, um, Derek, what's important to keep in mind is those, the patient rep and the consumer rep aren't meant to be scientists, right? They're there mm -hmm. on the panel to provide a different perspective. They're there not to sort of focus on p-values, but to focus on what the patient wants and what the patient needs. And so that's why those voices are there. Um, I'm not sure that we need to turn them into statisticians. Uh, that's why we have this broad, you know, clinicians, statisticians, consumer reps, patient reps, um, subject matter experts. And I think that's something that we should talk about as well as making sure that we have more subject matter experts that can really help drive some of those questions uh, or answers and discussions and provide some maybe some meaningful information and context to some of the discussion. But I, I'm not sure that we need to change um, or, or over educate the the patient reps and the consumer reps. I think they're they're there to provide a different perspective. So I, I think I just want to add to what and I want to emphasize and add to what uh, Virginia just said. Subject matter experts um, are absolutely critical to these meetings, and we have had more than more than our share of meetings where the experts on the committee were not subject matter experts. The clinicians on the committee were not subject matter experts in the therapeutic area. So then you now you have to add an educational component to your presentation and that extends the time. There is no reason why a meeting should happen without a few subject matter experts on the committee. Again, it's best that's a better outcome for public health. And that's something where the chair, when they have subject matter experts, can go to that to those people more often during the discussion to guide the rest of the panel members. And I'll just add, you know, I feel for the consumer reps and the patient reps because I'm not a scientist either. And I can tell you what we do at 3D, we have scientists at 3D. And when we get a new client, our scientists go through the data and then they sit down with me and people like, people like me in Virginia and we have a pre-meeting. So when we walk into the meeting with our clients, we're knowledgeable, we, we have the basics. Why couldn't we do that for the consumer rep and the patient rep? Why couldn't an FDA representative sit with them and walk them through an hour, you know, the day before the meeting or two days before the meeting, when all the materials come out, they sit with the with the patient rep and the consumer rep, and they walk them through and answer their basic questions in advance. Again, that will improve the discussion at the advisory committee, and that's what's best for public health. But Jim, want the sponsor want to sit in on those meetings? I don't think it's necessary. I mean, there's, there's, they might want to, but I don't think it's necessary for them to. I mean, there's a, you know, I, I trust the, I, I really do trust the FDA not to, not to bias uh, the committee members. There's training already that occurs, right? Yeah. That the sponsor doesn't sit in on, on FDA conduct, on basic regulatory guidance. Um, so this is just sort of an extended training on things like statistics. You know, what does this p-value mean? You know, is it 0.052? Does that mean that it's not not approvable? Um, so 
I think it would be helpful um, for the consumer reps and the, and the patient reps to have a little bit uh, a little bit of advanced uh, advanced notice or a little bit of education prior to the meeting. I know. And I would you're talking about on a product by product or meeting by meeting basis. On a meeting by meeting basis. I mean, it sounds like maybe they you want them to kind of just go through what they're going what what they're looking at, not necessarily saying trying to interpret things for them, but just saying like, okay, there were you know there's three trials here. This was a little different than what we've done before. Like they're, you know, they had like with a rare disease, they had one trial, it's only got 25 patients in it, but that's okay. You know, we accepted that, you know, like that kind of thing, not necessarily interpreting what they see. Or, or just go through their list of questions prior to the meeting with it. And, and the FDA could say, well, you know, ask those at the meeting, here are some, here are some basic answers to your basic questions. But these, this other, you know, you have 10 questions, seven are appropriate for the meeting. Those are great questions to bring up for group discussion. Here are three that are, you know, pretty basic, right? So now, now you're cutting down on some of those questions that eat into time and time is precious here. Because we could all agree that we want more time for discussion, more time for Q&A, and Sarah's exhausted thinking of eight to six. And I agree, <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm glad you brought up subject matter experts because the next issue I wanted to talk about was Dr. Cavazzoni, who's the director of CEDAR, saying that she wants to have more temporary members on the committees to make sure the correct, she said correct expertise, I believe was the phrasing, is available when at, for each application. Now, we've heard this before, too. The rare disease community is really into this idea. But, I mean... Do you foresee that significantly changing how the committee, how, you know, how these committees function or how, how that whole, how strategies work, you know, for sponsors going into those, going into these meetings? Yeah, I mean, Derek, that's, that's pretty much happening now. I think the FDA can do a better job and, and I don't think that they don't try. It's hard to get people on these panels. I know that from my experience there at the FDA, but I, I also know FDA has been pretty vocal about that. So, you know, right now we, and if, if there's a, a product um, and there are some cardiovascular issues, we expect a cardiologist on the panel. The FDA should should have that person. If there are liver issues, we would expect a, a, a liver expert uh, and so on, right? So, so they do a really good job or they try to now, but I think uh, they can do better. I think, as Jim said, let's make sure they at least have a couple of people that are familiar with the disease that treat those patients um, from a clinical perspective. And where there are specific issues, let's draw on those expertise and make sure the right people are on the panel so they can provide the right perspective. It's not a new concept, as you said, and and we see this. I mean, this happens already. Can Can they do better? Absolutely. Uh, and I think everybody agrees on that. And I think we just need to discuss, uh, I think the FDA should should discuss what are the barriers and then let's figure out how to knock down those barriers to make it happen because there's no question the FDA wants it to happen, the public wants it to happen, and the sponsors want it to happen. So what's stopping it from happening? From it happening? It's probably the conflict of interest rules and how much these folks are, get, are, are getting paid or or what conflicts them from participating on the panel from what they've done in the past. And I, I think yeah. we need to take a hard look at that because I, I, the intent is good, 
you want truly independent people. So we're, but I think we've we've gotten draconian with the rules, and you know the unintended consequence of being draconian with the rules to drive independence is we've lost an enormous pool of subject matter experts. I mean, Derek, you mentioned rare diseases. I mean, some of these diseases, there's just you know thousand patients or so, and mm-hmm. you don't have hundreds and hundreds of doctors treating these patients. So a lot of times, you know, these are the same people involved in the research and the studies um, running some of the trials. So it, as Jim said, it it becomes difficult, particularly in rare diseases. Right. And don't, I mean, don't let them vote. If, if, if it's an issue where you think there might be some bias, don't let them vote, but have them come, have them there on the panel for the FDA and for the other panel members to ask them questions. You know, have them disclose what their conflict is, not allow them to vote, but have them there for questioning during the discussion period. Jim, you just hit on a point I was going to bring up because I feel like years and years and years ago when FDA added more temporary members, but some of them did not vote because of conflicts. And I don't I feel like we don't see that at all now unless it's a guest speaker who is giving a special presentation. That's right. We've, We've gone away from that because we were were driving independence. uh, And I get that goal and I totally believe in that goal. These, these, you know, there should not be bias either way on that panel, but I think we've overcorrected. It's interesting that we've over, you think we've overcorrected because I think it was Padufa 5, the the rules were relaxed. There was a, it was changed in the law to make it easier because in part, I mean, we just talked about Raider's disease community. They were complaining that too many people were conflicted and they couldn't find people for committee meetings. And now, we're, you know, it seems like we either the problem wasn't fixed or we, we need to, you know, there needs to be some more work done in, in that area. I mean, especially with I mean, I've, I've heard people talk about the statistics of rare disease clinical trials, too, or there's a, a, a handful of people who are experts in that area. And, you know, they're all working on the rare disease you know, drug development. So, you you know, it's hard to find people to can explain N of one trials or, you know, these really, you know, some of these, real, you know, really small trials that they, that, um, you know, the rare disease people need to, you know, need when they're, when they're developing drugs. Of course, now we, we, we can't go on without mentioning, it seems like the, the FDA's willingness to maintain the virtual advisory committee meeting format um, that was employed during the pandemic they're all still going. I think they switched from. I think a lot of them have switched to the Zoom to Zoom now from the the previous platform that they used, where there were a lot of technical difficulties. But again, this is another one where there's a there's a lot of strong opinions on both sides of the issue. And I think there was even a report earlier this week that the ones that a lot of the ones that are scheduled right now they're still they're still all virtual, even though. You, you can go back. I've been to a meeting in the FDA since, you know, <laughs> post-pandemic or whatever we're calling the phase we're in now. Um, I mean, do you feel like, you know, is there a place for virtual for virtual meetings in a, you know, in the reform effort? You know, can they can virtual and in-person meetings exist together? I guess is a is probably the question that we maybe need to ask as part of this whole thing. I was going to say um, I was on a panel with um, or on a panel listening to a panel or a discussion with um, the FDA chief scientist earlier today, and she seemed very committed to um, 
some availability of hybrid meetings for kind of equity access issues and to deal with what we were just talking about, which is it's not that easy to get people to sit on these panels and, you know, mm -hmm. the convenience of them not having to travel and spend that time, um, you know, and whatever sacrifices that involves, it's she seemed to feel like really helps get, you know, a better variety of people who FDA needs on. So I, I don't think like we're going to get rid of um, <laughs> them entirely. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there's no replacement to being in the room together, right? But mm -hmm. I think the FDA has done a great job and, and we've seen some benefits. Um, Sarah, as you pointed out with some of these remote meetings, uh, it's probably easier to get people. Um, you don't have to travel. I'm Panelists probably use, lose three days of clinical work or other work that they're doing just to get to the FDA. Um, so, you know, the, they've worked out some of the kinks in the technology. They're now, most all of them now, I think, are on video, which helps. Um, so I do think that they've done a good job. Um, I'm not seeing any difference in sort of the other uh, regulatory agencies um, across the globe. So Europe is still uh, pretty much remote. So I don't think it's just unique to the FDA, but um, I'm, you know, Jim, I don't know if you have anything to add on that, but yeah, definitely pros and cons to both sides. Yeah, so I, I agree with you, Sarah and Virginia. I think the, the biggest pro to remote meetings is that you open up the pool of, of qualified advisory committee members. Um, really hard to get somebody from, you know, UCLA to fly across the country on a consistent basis, you know, to come to a meeting um, in, in Bethesda. So that's the pro. Uh, Virginia mentioned there's no substitute for face-to-face. -face. I can tell you our sponsors want to be face-to-face. -face. But I think there's things we can do if, if FDA, I mean, this is an FDA decision in the end, right? If, if the FDA decides that they want to have a remote element, um, I think we need, need to put some consistency rules in place. Uh, the Verb Pack did it beautifully. Cameras were on the entire day. Everybody's camera was on. The sponsor, and we had multiple sponsors at meetings with you know 20 advisory committee members. They worked out the technology for the VERPAC meetings, but for other meetings, I know you can't have your camera on and it's gotta be pre-recorded. And well, why? It's the same bandwidth that we're using, you know, in a why. So if you wanna make these, if you wanna have the benefits of virtual, then we need to do the best we can to make sure we bring the live elements into the room. And the live element that we miss uh, with virtual is that that eye contact that face to face it's reading are you answering the advisory committee members question are they shaking their head no and grimacing or are they shaking their head yes i get you i mean that's that's important for the public health discussion we want to make sure we're answering their questions and when you're talking to you know an, an eye, a picture of the person or an icon of their initials and you don't even know if they're listening i mean it, it's hard to have a robust meeting that way and again, I'll go back to, you know, decades of research, hundreds of million dollars of spent patients who are hoping that we get new products to market that are going to improve quality of life and, you know, potentially extend life. We shouldn't be cutting corners. Uh, these, the stakes are too high to cut corners. So if we're going to go with the convenience factor, uh, we need to really update and uh, update and improve on our technology and some of the rules of engagement. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was just going to say and make them consistent across the board. 
Yes. So right, right now we're finding, you know, different review divisions doing different things. And I think consistency and to to Jim's point, um, really upping the game and, and making sure that we're doing the best we can to make sure that there's engagement on both sides. Sorry, Sarah, go ahead. I was just going to say in terms of cutting corners, I remember from back in the day with in-person meetings, one thing that would happen is you'd have these panelists that were there all day and then suddenly they'd they made their flight like way too early yeah. and they'd be heading out the door before yeah. votes or something or, you know, sometimes it maybe it was a two day advisory committee meeting or they had one drug yeah. one day and, you know, and then they missed the second drug. So I think there were there were problems. Um, in terms of, you know, actually getting what FDA needed from these members <laughs> in real in-person in meetings too. So, um, yeah. it, it's some it's sort of tough some of these like very non-scientific dynamics can play a big role in things. Yeah, my my last two meetings that I've worked on, uh, the FDA ha is now convening all together. So we see them in White Oak or in a large room so we can see all of the FDA, which is very nice. And then, as Jim said, if all the panelists have their cameras on, if the sponsor has their camera on, it it does help. I've, you know, back two years ago, even last year, we were, we were still doing no cameras whatsoever, which is which is really challenging. I just don't, to Jim's point, that these stakes are too high and too too important for patients. We we should have as much engagement as possible. But Virginia, you note that in some cases all of the FDA staff are together in the same room, but it's really difficult to see everybody. You can't see exactly yeah, who's talking. Yeah. Yeah. You can't see that who's talking. That camera is really far away. And there are people <laughs> there who aren't listed on the agenda. And it's just, it's very difficult to keep track of. And you can't see, you know, in the old days of the ODAC meetings in person, Rick, Rick Pazner saying, you know, doing this, you know. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that's the, a great The head point nod too. or the head shake, you know. <laughs> You're absolutely right. It's it's sometimes hard to to see. We They could do a better job of, of some camera work over there. Right. And that's because just their camera is not on the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and I, I'm just commenting on recent, uh, a couple of recent meetings. So that's new. That's new as well. So, and that's certainly something that's incredibly easy to fix from a technology standpoint. There are there are cameras that react to the speaker and will focus on the speaker. The technology has been there for years. You know, we can fix this. So yeah, that's a that's a great potential solution. You have FDA all in one room. You have the sponsor all in one room. Um, you know, you have requirements for you know minimal technology, you know, minimal viable product. We talk about MVP in the technology world, minimal viable product. Well, we have to have a, you know, a minimal viable product for an advisory committee meeting. And if you want to be remote, this is what you have to do, you know, and if you don't, if you can't do that, then you show up live. It's this, that's very interesting. These, these, all these big ideas now. So I, I guess I'm curious, Jim or Virginia, you know, how are sponsors reacting to this? I mean, are there do they have like their own list of things that they they want changed? I know you mentioned, you know, the the in-person component of this. I mean, are you know, are sponsors worried about votes and temporary members and and you know, committee, you know, making sure the committee members know know what they've read and ahead of time and so forth? Yeah, well, you know, I think one of the things we need to keep in mind here is and I mean, maybe this is just from our perspective, but I, I don't I think the process works pretty well. 
and has been working well for for many, many years. So the things that we're talking about are really about improvements. Some of the things that we've talked about are even things that are already happening, but maybe we should be doing more of them. So um, to you know, specifically, Derek, yeah, absolutely. Sponsors want to see more subject matter experts. It's helpful for them. They want to see people, clinicians that treat the patients um, on the disease area that that they're specifically talking about. Um, they want more time for Q and A. I think more discussion is going to you know benefit everybody. So all of these things are things that are already happening, but how do we improve upon them? How do we make it better? How do we make, you know, and, and really think about why we're here in the first place, right? We we talked about that earlier. So how do we think about the things that can can benefit um, the overall process that in my mind is, has generally been working pretty well? Um, I think the FDA is generally getting what they want from them. Um, and I think that's what they really need to focus on. What do they need from these panel meetings and how's the best way to get it? You know, some of the stuff is already going on. I mean, I guess I don't know if if you feel like there's like low hanging fruit that can be nobody can do anything quickly, but, you know, you know, quickly in the that can be easily implemented, I guess, from the from the FDA perspective. Is there is there low hanging fruit? Yeah, I think I, I think Virginia just hit on some of the low hanging fruit, actually, um, you know, getting subject matter experts, more subject matter experts to the meeting. I think that's pretty low hanging fruit. I mean, I know there's it's it's not easy, but if the FDA, you know, had an internal requirement that you're going to have two subject matter experts at every meeting, then it, it would happen. And that might take them an extra week or two or a month to schedule the meeting, you know, um, but, you know, to get that availability. But I think that's absolutely crucial creating more time for discussion by streamlining the redundancies in the presentations that can happen tomorrow. It's already happening in some divisions. Like, I mean, CDRH does it a lot already. So mm -hmm. that's just an internal policy decision. That doesn't take a change in the act. Um, so I think those are, that's- Streamlining really the discussion questions as well, Jim, I would say. Yeah. Um, sometimes we see, you know, five questions with six subparts. Um, that's an awful lot. And by the time by the time you get to the third question or the fourth question, there's fatigue in the room. So, um, you know, maybe handling some of these ahead of time, um, some of the some of the things that that they can deal with with the panel ahead of time, some of these issues and really focusing on the key things. Again, what does FDA need to get out of this meeting? That's why they hold them. So thinking about that, um, I do think, you know, Sarah, I'm sorry, but I do think that it's very easy to get another hour in these meetings that's that's productive, right? I'm not saying that we should now have two hour presentations, but streamline the presentations, add more time for Q&A, add more time for really, you know, enriched streamlined discussion, making sure that people are prepared. We've talked about some of the ways that we can do that. So I think there really are ways that um, that we can fix right now. I, I'll, I'll just give you an outlier example. You know, we've worked on over the last 20 years, more than or approximately 500 advisory committee meetings. And uh, in one situation, and I've, I've pulled members of the company, and I think I'm the only one that experienced this. And I was shocked when it happened a couple of years ago. After the briefing books went out to the panel members, the FDA collected questions from the panel members submitted them to the sponsor in advance of the meeting and said, these are questions that we've collected from the various members. Can you answer these in advance of the meeting and we'll send them to all of the, we'll send them to all the advisors. 
Now, some of those meetings were, some of those questions were asked again, but it was much more focused. You know, the question was more focused, the answer was more focused, and not all the questions were asked again, because again, some of them are just, well, why doesn't this end match that end? The end on table 12 doesn't match the end on table 14, why? Uh, you know, you can answer those little easy questions um, well in advance of the meeting, and it's, it's not gonna impact the, the, the vote, uh, but if we could eliminate some of that, that creates more time for real discussion. Um, why can't that happen after every meeting? The panel members get the briefing books almost a month in advance. Um, so ask them to read it in the first two weeks, submit their questions and get and get the and you can make the answers available to the public. Here are the questions that were submitted in the uh, you know to the uh, to the sponsors in advance of the meeting. Here are their answers. It's you know you're not doing anything to um, to reduce transparency. It increases transparency. Putting the questions in in advance, that would allow the sponsor, if it is a, a more complicated issue than just why does this end not match that end, it would allow the sponsor and the FDA to build responses to those questions into its actual presentations. Because there have been a number of times where, you know, only in clarifying questions did the sponsor or the FDA show this one particular slide that really addressed a lot of questions. And you think, well, why wasn't that part of the main presentation in the first place if everybody was interested in that? It's and it was it would also force the advisory committee members to read the briefing books, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So so I have a question for you guys. Why why do the advisory panel members get the briefing books a month ahead of time if the public can only get it about two days ahead of time? <laughs> what is the sort of what's the logic, I guess, behind that? Well, because the advisory committee members are are asked to make a public vote on recommending or not recommending. And even if we do away with the votes, they're going to be asked to discuss questions and they need more than two days to properly prepare. So I, I think that's reasonable. I, I think also if if the material is put out so far in advance, there's there's going to be a lot of reporting. Um, no offense to you all, but and and potential bias. Right. So. This is about providing all the information to the panelists so that they have ample time to review it and come in prepared, not to have a public discussion ahead, you know, a month ahead of the meeting. As we start to kind of move towards wrapping this up, is looking ahead, you know, we've we've obviously got a bunch of ideas on the table. We don't know for sure what FDA is going to do yet, but just looking at what you the what the agency seems to prefer do you feel like this is going to you know i don't know if we we feel like there'll be more advisory committees you know under in a you know once the kind of the the changes that they decide to make are made are we going to see less advisory committees dr caleb has talked about issue specific advisory committees instead of application specific committee meetings you know, where do you think the FDA is kind of going in this, in, you know, in, in uh, you know, that kind of, yeah, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, in, with the reform effort? A couple of things. You, you've asked a few questions there, Derek. Um, I want to start with the, some of Dr. Califf's comments or thoughts around more issue meetings and less product specific. Um, the, the agency is already doing some issue meetings. Um, we've mm -hmm. been involved in a number. Um, I think those can be very helpful. I personally don't think it's about more or less. It's about why they're having an advisory panel meeting and making sure that the FDA is getting from the panel what they want from the panel. 
Um, there are generally issues on the table that need to be discussed. I don't see how they would get away from having product-specific advisory panel meetings, and I'm not sure that would be a good idea. Um, you know, every product, even in a class, are different. The trials are different. The outcomes are different. And I think every product really needs to be assessed on its own merits. So I'm with that idea, um, you know, all respect to Dr. Califf, who, who is brilliant. I do think having more issue meetings could be fabulous, but I, I don't think it's one or the other. I think both um, can, you know, play a role, but products need to be assessed uh, on their merits. And um, and as I said, I, I don't see that changing. No, and in fact, I think Dr. Califf has said that he he favors more advisory committee meetings because it it helps with public confidence um, in the process and it improves transparency of what the FDA is doing. Uh, so, as Virginia said earlier, the system isn't broken. The system needs. I think reform is good. I think change is good. And change is always good. Uh, so to challenge the process and to try to make it better is what I see the the leadership at FDA doing, and we applaud it, frankly. Yeah. Um, but again, the system isn't broken. There are, there have always been issues for the 20 years we've been doing this. There's been issues issues meetings, and I think maybe I'm biased because this is what we do for a living. Uh, I think more advisory committee meetings when there are issues are are better uh, because it does promote public trust uh, and public knowledge. Uh, we certainly saw it with vaccines. Um, there were many advisory committee meetings where while there was broad ex broad alignment uh, among the advisory committee members and with the agency, one of the major reasons to have the meeting was to have a public discussion about the data. So uh, yeah. there's, there's nothing bad about that. That's that's a good thing. Yeah, Jim, Jim raised, um, you know, two words that were really important, public trust and transparency. And I and I think that's that's really important for these meetings. I worked I worked at the agency not once but twice um, because it's it's such an exciting place and there's really no agency that has such um, tangible impact on the day to day lives of of Americans. So to be able to build that, you know, you have to have trust in the agency, right? You have to be able to trust. And, and I think that does it. Um, but being transparent about those decisions is also really important. And, and advisory panels help do that. Well, on that note, I think we'll we'll end it here. This has been a, re a really, really great discussion. Um, for more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to this special edition of Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Sue Sutter, and I want to especially thank our special guests from 3D Communications, Jim DiBiase and Virginia Cox. Take care, and we'll see you next time.